just one look at you And I know it's gonna be A lovely It's time now for another Pinball Profile. I'm your host, Jeff Teolos. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. Please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher and check us out on Instagram at Pinball Profile. Here at Free Play Florida, where I've seen this man several years, and it's always a treat to see him here in a special year for him, turning 70 years old this year. Walter Day joins us. Hi, Walter. How are you? I am honored to be on Pinball Profile. Thanks for reining me in and getting me here in front of your microphone. It's a, And it's a great show. The, the Free Play Florida show is among my very favorite shows. And it's one of those things where, you know, there's like this sense of an ambient energy or an ambient goodwill feeling that's here at this place that is very much in the top tier of gaming events that I ever go to. So Free Play Florida is special to me. It's, people really like this event. It's great because there's a lot of families here, too. So you're seeing all different generations of people playing arcade games, playing pinball machines, and that certainly has to excite you because for some of the younger people, they're seeing some of these games for the first time, some of the retro games or some of the pinball machines. And back when I was a young boy, this was just like, this was like my best friend. You know, these games when they came out, but they've gone into home systems now. So to see these machines out here, it's really special. It must mean a lot to you. Oh, yeah. It's very interesting to see the uh, the genesis of not only the, the games as a as an entertainment modality, but also the genesis of just a, a, like a social revolution. New generations are discovering the old coin-up games and embracing them and absolutely loving them to death. So there is a younger generation that's coming in and uh, displacing, replacing the older generation as the older generation moves you know, on later into their life, what have you. So a lot of young people do like the games and are fascinated by the games. And when they find the games, like their parents bring them or their uncles bring them, they can't believe that something like this exists and that there could be this much fun in one single room. For me, when I was a young boy, I certainly remember games like skeet ball and things where you might win prizes. I certainly remember pinball machines. But I'll never forget the first time I saw Space Invaders, and I was like, what is this? How is that on the screen? How is this possible? And then came Pac-Man and Centipede and all these wonderful games to where we are now in the home gaming system. But, I mean, that, I was a young boy at the time, but that had to just really be the game changer. You know what's interesting about that, and uh, I completely agree with that. It was the game changer, completely. It's very interesting that all of us, many of us, most of us who come to these Koenop big festivals here... I like to think of them as festivals because they have so many different parallel features to them going on. It's not just video games, it's not just pinball, it's also the society, the community, the culture, the home games, the designers, the, the, the game creators, uh, the artwork, um, the, the voiceover artists, so many different aspects of what we call the global gaming culture all merged together into what I think of as a festival. So it's a festival here. And it's so interesting that the people who are coming here are the people who actually ushered in the age of gaming. We are the first gamers. We are the pioneers who brought cyberspace into reality and made it the biggest entertainment modality in world history. I mean, 2,000 years ago, they had the amphitheater in Rome and they had the gladiators (laughs) fighting. And I think that they thought that probably was the end all and the be all of entertainment. But no, I think that the video game age is far more fun, far more provocative, far more entertaining and far more creative than anything that's ever come before it. And also, more and more people are able to embrace it than ever before because not only are the games so wide-embracing, 
in their qualities and their character, meaning there's, there's, there's maze games, there's fighting games, there's driving games, there's shooting games, there's dancing games, there's music games, there's, there's so many different team games, individual games, there's so many different uh, you know, spins on the gaming modality that there's something for everybody. At the same time, modern technology allows uh, the infrastructure on the Internet to connect everybody with everybody else, no matter where they are. You can compete or communicate with almost anybody else, especially who's on the internet. So it's amazing that the gaming community is, a, is literally, not just in figure of speech, literally is a global gaming community that we think the number is at about 2 billion or more people now. I'm not surprised. Now that's why I wanted to talk to you because, yes, with the internet, this is easy. But let's go back to before there was the internet. So 25 years plus ago and even beyond that, that's not how we found out what others were doing. And that's where you came in with Twin Galaxies. So I want you to tell those who don't know your reasoning for putting together Twin Galaxies and how it grew to be such an amazing way for people to connect, like you mentioned. Okay. So everybody, when they travel especially during the summer and they go on their road trips, they should all swing by Iowa. And they should go to Ottumwa, Iowa. O-T-T-U-M-W-A. It's in South Iowa near the Missouri border. They should go there and they should go to downtown East Main Street in Ottumwa, Iowa. And there on the wall, out on a building at 226 East Main Street, is a big bronze plaque, a big bronze memorial historic marker that's embedded in the against the wall at 226 East Main Street, and it weighs 220 pounds, okay? It's 35 inches wide. I think they paid $6,000 to have it made wow. and put up and everything, over $6,000, actually. Essentially, it says on it the words Twin Galaxies. Then below that, it says the historic birthplace of organized competitive esports. And the bronze plaque tells the story of how Twin Galaxies, which was an arcade that opened up on November 10th, 1981, overnight had become the world's most famous arcade and had put organized competitive esports on the map for the first time, long before the expression esports ever came into existence. And here's how that happened. Three months into the existence of Twin Galaxies, in February of 1982, I was running the arcade, because I owned it, of course, and someone came up to me and said, look, I can beat this score in this magazine. And I said, what magazine? And he pulled out a copy of the January 18th, 1982 edition of Time magazine. And it had a big cover story on it uh, about video games taking over the world, how big of a deal they'd become with Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Centipede, Tempest and Frogger. And in that article, it was like a 10-page article. It was a very big deal. It was, it, was there, it was a major story. It was a little feature box that talked about a kid in Chicago named Steve Jurassic, almost like Jurassic Park. And it talks about how he'd put one quarter in a video game, Defender, and he played it for essentially 15 hours and got 14 million points. What? Or maybe it was 14 hours and got 15 million points. But I always get that mixed up after all these years. But essentially, uh, I looked at the article... And then I looked at him, and I said, oh, yeah, well, prove it. Prove that you can do this. And so that weekend, he put a quarter in the game. And after so many hours, I saw, wow, he's really good. And as he began to get past 10 million points and getting close to 15 million points, I began to talk, call the radio station. And they got very excited about it, much to my surprise. and came down and started covering it as a live 
breaking news story. Then I called the TV station. They came down in person, and the TV, ABC News, started covering it as the live breaking news story. And then I called the newspaper, and a reporter came down, and they started covering it. Newspapers don't cover things live because, you know, they they have their their, their time frame, their deadlines. But they covered it as a story. But then the most miraculous thing happened. As he began to get closer and closer to breaking the record and going beyond it, we started getting calls from the media in St. Louis, five-hour drive away, Minneapolis, six-and-a-half hours driving away, Chicago, far-flung cities began to call up the, their media to inquire about this story. This story was a fascinating story that the media was absolutely, absolutely plugged into, almost addicted to. They were intrigued by the, just the spiritual essence of man versus machine. Man's creativity beats these new age, space age monsters, the machines. So it was an amazing story how this one guy, this new kind of heroics, with one quarter and a lot of courage in his heart and two fists, he beat Defender and he went on for 25 hours and made 24 million points. And on Monday morning, I called up Williams Electronics who made the game and said, look, here's what happened. Is this a new world record? And they said, we don't know because no one keeps track of the scores. Bingo. They literally said, every day we get called about scores and we don't know. No one keeps track of the scores. And I says, oh, okay. And so I, got, I, th- I got an idea. So I thought about it, and then I called up Replay Magazine and Playmeter Magazine, which are the two coin-op magazines of that era and also of this modern era, even now. And they both said, we get called every day on all sorts of high scores and all sorts of games, but we don't know because no one keeps track of the records. And so then I called Nintendo and Exidy and Atari and Williams and Midway, I essentially called seven manufacturers and two magazines and asked them all these same questions, and they all said, we don't know. No one keeps track of these scores or records. What a missed opportunity, and you jumped all over. And so what happened is I thought about it that night, and the next day I called back all nine of those phone calls, and I said, we have a scoreboard here, which is true. It's up on the wall, and we're keeping track of the records. And all nine of them through some miracle of divine karma or divine fate, all said, that's great, thank you. We will put your name and your number right here at our front desk Rolodex. When anybody calls, we will refer them to you as the experts who know what the world records are. And a couple of them said, by the way, who are you? <laughs> and I said, oh, after I gave them the number and the name and everything, I said, oh, and off the top of my head, I made up the name, because the RK was called Twin Galaxies. And I said, oh, we're the Twin Galaxies National Scoreboard. That's great. And, uh, and from there, I hung up the phone after the last phone call and went back into the arcade and began to play Gorf again. 30 minutes later, one of my arcade attendants taps me on the shoulder and says, uh, Mr. Day, someone's on the phone. They're, they're calling long distance. It's about wow. a video game score. And so I go, to the, I go to the phone, and sure enough, it's a kid named Casey Murphy calling from Goodlitzville, Tennessee, and he had a high score on the Galaga. It turns out that not long after I had called Midway, he called Midway wanting to know the high score, and they probably said something like this. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We have a place for you to call now. Here, here, here it is. I got it on my Rolodex. Twin Galaxies. Call Twin Galaxies, Walter Day, Tumble, Iowa, and here's the phone number. And essentially, I had my first phone call there, and I looked up at the scoreboard and saw, he told me his score, and I looked up at the scoreboard on our wall, 
and I saw that our night watch person, which is a lady who was one of my night attendant, had a higher score than him. So I turned back to the phone and in a very solemn voice I said, Sir, you have the world's second highest score. <laughs> and he got all excited and said, Oh my God, I can beat that. I can beat that. And he called back the next day with a higher score. So let me relate to 2019 right now. We're talking about video games, but it also translates very well to pinball, and you also were the authority for pinball. You saw in your record books that you authored as well. But that kind of pursuit of the grand champion score as we relate to pinball, or even in tournaments like here at Free Play Florida, they see what the top score is, and they think it's attainable, and that's the goal, to beat it some way, somehow, and maybe it's a different path than you normally play, where you put in a lot more risk to get a greater reward. It's very similar, that kind of competitive nature from back in 1981 to it is right now, even in pinball and, of course, in video games as well. Okay. Now, everything you said is incredibly important to address, but I'm going to put that right to the side for a second and finish one more idea on, on, on the original narrative here, okay? And what that is is this. When the arcade era was dawning and suddenly over 50,000 towns had an arcade, a, video game, a modern video game arcade, as we'll call it, I mean, in every single place... Immediately, people saw that, wow, there's high scores on the machines. And so the big ego trip, the big goal, was to have the highest score. So high score competitions happened spontaneously, and every arcade or every place the games were, you're in competition to have your initials be at the top. So high score competitions began to happen in every single arcade in North America. When a person was good at a game... A crowd would gather around him and watch him play. And those who are old enough to remember that will, me- will remember that. Wow, if you were good at a game, you'd have a lot of people watching you, looking and over your shoulder. clapping when you're done. Clapping when you're done and clapping when you go through a difficult thing and make it through it and stuff like that. So the aspect of spectator sport, that spiritual energy was completely already up and running. There's modern people in the modern esports industry who are sort of believing erroneously that they were the ones who helped invent spectator sport. And spectator sport, was it's it's actually a spiritual dynamic. Everybody's fascinated by the top gamers and people who excel. It applies to every sport, and including video games. So what happens now is there's an infrastructure in place that allows the essence of spectatorship finally to fulfill itself to its fullest degree. Because of technology... It's possible for anybody in the world with Twitch and other things to play to an audience as big as they can get or as small as they can get, and everybody can watch them play and ooh and ah over their expertise in gaming. And so, and when they have the big stadiums filled with people, it's possible for three million people to actually pay for view and watch a League of Legends or a Dot or something like that championship happen. So it's false in believing that the modern era invented the, the idea and the reality of spectator sports. No, it was alive and well in every arcade back there in the ancient days. It's just that there was no technology that allowed that phenomenon no to fulfill and, itself, yeah. okay? So that's, that's part of the nature of what our generation created, the spectator sport. Now, another thing to consider is that when Twin Galaxies came into existence, all these different contests that would happen, all these different arcades, It was like drawing a line in water. In other words, as soon as the contest was over, all the results would be thrown away or disappear. When the arcade closed, all the results of all their contests would be thrown away or disappear. 
when a game was moved out of the arcade and moved to a different Walmart in another city or something, because that was typical, because everybody had, most people had leasers, uh, or route vendors, operators who would bring the games in. So when the games got moved, the, 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 the high score legacy on that game was washed away and forgotten and no longer. So in other words, there was no reality to any of these arcades being part of what we call an organized sport. When Twin Galaxies came into existence, it united all the arcades in the world, but in reality, all the ones that heard of us and interacted with us, because a lot of them never, never knew us, knew of us, because there was no internet back then to get our word out. But the thousands and thousands of arcades that didn't know of Twin Galaxies, we united them all in a big global esports arena. That's why Twin Galaxies is considered the birthplace of organized competitive esports because we united all the arcades together so that we wrote the rules and they all followed the rules. We enforced the rules and they all followed the rules. We would determine the standings, the leaderboards for, all, for like 350 different games back in that era. And so you would know no matter where you are what the scores you had to beat. And so you became part of a tradition and a legacy that was preserved even up to this modern time. So, again, here on Pinball Profile, I would assume with Twin Galaxies, we certainly know that they had to submit the scores by calling, but then that obviously changed to submitting video cassettes of scores showing how this was done. Was that the same for Pinball as well? How did it work? Well, for video games, it was necessary to tighten things up because uh, lots, lots of cheating became apparent because I didn't believe that people would lie about a video game score, but people were very hungry just to try and improve the quality of their life. And they thought if they were video game superstars that it would bring more fame, more glory, more money, more happiness. So, and that didn't quite work for most of them. Most of them were kind of like a little bit off anyway, you know. <laughs> so pinball's a special, special subject. I love pinball. Isn't pinball wonderful? It is. And uh, when a manufacturing run is happening for a pinball game and the pinball machines roll off the assembly line, even from that very, very first moment, no two pinball machines behave exactly alike. So it's virtually impossible to standardize a pinball machine that has so many working parts and moving parts and so many nuances that all have a life of their own that begin to go off or change or flippers become a little different. You know, the, just so many ways that things just modify themselves and change so that the games can't really be considered exactly the same. Tilt bobs, pitches, you absolutely. know, how many balls are on them? Absolutely. There are so many ways that make it really impossible to legitimately gather scores from one contest venue and another contest venue and blend them together. So not only were the games being mischievous, and changing their own qualities on their own because of aging and because of the room temperature changing and stuff like that. So many different things. Strength of flippers or so many Yeah, yeah exactly. But also, also different organizers' events make it a more enticing, interesting competition at their particular venue at that time. We'll do changes with how, you know, the, 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 drain, the lanes and stuff like that and uh, the flippers and stuff. You can like. move the posts for sure. Yeah, moving the posts around. So therefore, it became maddening to try and do a legitimate scoreboard that was 100% accurate simply because we had the Twilight Zone I think we had 1,200 different people ranked on leaderboard for Twilight Zone alone 
and they came from dozens of different contests. The contests were certified, done by Papa and IFPA and all the different ones. It's just that, you know, that some of them clearly had different posts were moved around and the flippers were wrong and stuff like that. And that would reflect in scores becoming outrageously high or outrageously low or something like that. And the surface, the surface uh, of the board, you know, the playing field, could be older and scratching, so the ball slows down. Somebody can put a bunch of Novus on there to grease it up. And yeah, and, and someone will go and renovate a game so it's at the top line. Now it's slick, and so the ball's all over the place. And uh, and some people might play better with the ball going fast, but I think most people have a better control of when the ball's going slow. It was really a, a difficult thing, which is too bad because pinball is so glorious, and it'd be so cool to have the ultimate level set of leaderboards that truly define one person's skill as opposed to another person's skill, which in essence means leaderboards. So, so what we have here is a situation where two people can be of equal skill level, which is actually hard to determine, but let's say we had two people of skill, same skill level, and one played in a, on the same machine on the East Coast, the other played on the machine, same machine, in a similar machine on the West Coast, and one person's score can be greatly, greatly greater simply because of the condition of the machine. So the machines are almost impossible to make them objectively the same so that the scores can be legitimately merged together without one person being favored more than another. So here at Free Play Florida, I've seen you walk through the pinball room. Of course, the huge showroom has tons of arcade games. It has tons of pinball machines. And of course, there's a Donkey Kong right beside you and Billy Mitchell's there. And every time I think I see you, I see you and Billy together at the shows. Billy obviously was questioned for those who don't know about uh, the Donkey Kong score. Just want to get your thoughts on that. Well, there's a modern group of people who are using what they think is accurate technology of uh, analyzing machines feel that some of the behavior of his old displayed on his old videotapes of his gameplay indicates from their perspective that he had used MAME. But I was the guy who actually verified the stuff and watched a lot of the stuff and knew what was going on. And I just know there was no MAME available and no MAME was being used by anybody back then, including Billy. So my statement has been that Billy didn't use MAME because I would have known it and it would have been very obvious and no one had MAME back. No one was using MAME in an arcade cabinet way back then so I would testify that he's not guilty of using MAME and all that stuff even though there's all sorts of modern people who think that they have the evidence and stuff like that but there's a lot of legal stuff going on about it so we'll just see how it turns out I've seen some of the legal documents that Billy has presented online, too. So you're right. We'll see where that goes. But I just saw him crush a Donkey Kong game out here. So if anybody could do it, he oh, certainly well, could. Billy, well, Billy actually is is one of the great, great, great gamers of all time. And so uh, if anybody can do it, he can do it. For sure. You talked about Twin Galaxies and running that. You know, there was a nice little tribute, whether it was done on purpose or not. But if the kids watch Wreck-It Ralph and you see that character in there, that's Walter Day. Oh, yeah. Now, that's Walter Day. What happened is this. There was a movie called Chasing Ghosts. So Chasing Ghosts is a documentary on the story of that famous Life magazine photograph with all the people posing in the street behind the video games. There's a famous photo in Life magazine, and it's probably the most famous photo generated by the global video game industry. And so a documentary was made on the making of that photograph. And when the documentary was almost completely done, was about to be shown at the Sundance Film Festival in January 2007. Pixar Studios asked the producer-director to bring in the film and show it to their whole staff. And so they brought it in, and the whole staff, everybody emptied all their cubicles, and the whole company got down to the theater and watched it. And I'm the featured main person in it. 
and they just loved the story. They essentially uh, decided just as what's called a tribute character. Mr. Litwack. Mr. Litwack. Make Mr. Litwack based on me. So it is me. But that's not the only kind of pop culture reference that certainly comes to mind when you think of Walter Day. The author of Ready Player One, Ernst Klein, has actually said that he was inspired by Twin Galaxies and you. So that's pretty flattering for oh, yeah. oh, yeah. somebody turned to be a major motion picture, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. He got up on the stage in front of a whole bunch of people and says, without Walter Day and Billy Mitchell Twin Galaxies, there would have been no Ready Player One. Because he says when he grew up, he followed our exploits in the magazines closely when he was a little kid. And then when he was writing Ready Player One, he would go to the movie Chasing Ghosts that everybody should go see, and he'd watch that again and again and again while using Chasing Ghosts as the inspiration in my story, and the story of Twin Galaxies is inspiration for making the, the book. Pretty amazing, huh? It is pretty amazing. Even though here at the show and every show I see you, you're wearing the referee shirt, you actually retired from being a referee in 2008. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't function really as a referee. I wear the shirt up because it's part of the, just the appearance aspect, you know. But one time I went to a Colorado Rockies baseball game in 2013, and we rushed out of that Donkey Kong championship called the Kong Off, and I still have my shirt on. And we got photographed at the stadium wearing my shirt and in the, in the, sitting in the stands. And people began to say things like, doesn't he ever take it off? He's wearing that in a baseball game. So I thought there was such a funny joke that I've been wearing the shirt and through all sorts of things. I even climbed a mountain in Australia. And up on top of the mountain, in my rough roof shirt, I sat down and meditated cross-legged there. And, uh, and people getting used to the idea that, like, where's Walter, where's Walter? Exactly. I'd love to see a show where everyone came in with referee shirts or, or like, like a footlocker convention or something just to kind of throw, where's Walter? That'd be tough to find you. Yeah, that'd be pretty funny. That'd be pretty <laughs> funny. So we mentioned earlier, 70 years old, congratulations this year. But you've kind of maintained the fountain of youth, and you have a little bit of a secret when you go away in December. Oh, well, the thing is, is I practice transcendental meditation every day. And T, they call it TM for short. I can't begin to tell you guys how important it is for everybody who does it. It's like the biggest secret for giving me a leg up in life that I've got. And essentially what it is is this. In 1968-69, I was part of what was called the hippie culture. I had long hair and a beard. I was actually like 60 pounds heavier of muscle. I used to bench press 310 pounds. not amazing? <laughs> That's the weight of a pinball machine. Yes. And essentially, uh, I had been taking drugs, though. You know, marijuana, LSD, and stuff like that. And I had nonstop headaches. I stopped taking the drugs, but I had nonstop headaches, nonstop backaches. My feet ached. My stomach was always sick, and I couldn't hardly digest properly. I couldn't sleep at night. I had depression and anxiety awful experience and I met someone else who had had the same experience and they said oh I went and learned something called transcendental meditation that's taught at this local center there in, in this was Cambridge Massachusetts and they said after a few weeks all that stuff went away so I said really so I went down to what was called the TM center and I learned the technique it's an actual thing you do it's not a philosophy or a theory that you think about no why do I believe in this or believe in that nothing to do with your belief it's actually something you sit down in a chair and close your eyes and do and when you do it it triggers off the state of unique consciousness that scientists are amazed by and say that it's a unique fourth state of human consciousness different from waking dreaming and sleeping that everybody commonly experiences in the cycle every single day 
So essentially, I went and did it, and within weeks, all those bad symptoms of the headache, the grief, the depression, the anxiety, the uh, ache, hurt in the back, the feet, the achy feet, the, the low energy level, the bad digestion, the not sleep any, all of that went away because it turns out that the transcendental meditation that you only do like 20 minutes in the mo- early in the morning before you start your day, then you do it 20 minutes, maybe more at 5 or 6 in the afternoon when you come back from work, and it completely clears you up and refreshes you. A lot of people come home and take drugs or drink just to try and escape the incredible tension and stress of the day and unwind. That's this is the, natural. That's the way to medicate themselves and unwind, okay? You sit down and do transcendental meditation, it goes deeper and better and farther and completely clears out all the stress that you accumulate in the day and then starts working on the huge backlog that you've been carrying around your whole life that's affecting this part of your health and that part of your health, things that aggravate diabetes, things that aggravate nervous system stuff. That's all caused by this heavy, heavy residue of stress that you can get it out of you and it changes the course of your life. And it's unbelievable because it works and worked for me. And I'm so impressed that I continue to do it because it got better and better and better because it turns out that it also repairs that part of the brain structure that's responsible for the creative expression, for the creative process. Your creativity doesn't exist out of nowhere. It's actually connected to the condition of your nervous system. And TM certainly would help that. And then you're going away to India. I go away to India, not because of religious stuff, but because I go to a famous health spa there that does something called Ayurveda. It's an ancient word meaning like uh, science of life. And uh, it reverses the process of aging. And what it does is it detoxifies the body and balances the body's health at a deeper and deeper level than modern Western pharmaceutical medicines able to. Most of the pharmaceutical medication, medication, if not all of it, actually has major serious side effects. And that's why every ad you see on TV says, you can't take this, blah, blah. And the warnings will be incredibly long. 30 different things you got to watch out for. Walter, you live life to the fullest. There's no question about it. And when you get back from India, when you get back from shows like Free Play Florida, you'll be back at your home in Iowa, where I think you and I were talking beforehand, you got to check out the Major League Baseball game next year when the Yankees and the White Sox play at the Field of Dreams. Yes, the one from the movie. And I think I told you I'm a huge fan of the book before Field of Dreams. It's called Shoeless Joe by Ray Kinsella, a Canadian author. Wonderful, wonderful book. Now made into that movie and now going to be seeing Major League Baseball. you got to go to that. Oh, my God. Well, the thing is they're going to they're only going to make 8,000 seats. I think it's July they're going to have it. Up there in Dyersville, Iowa, where they had the Field of Dreams. Uh, what they did is they went a quarter of a mile, a half a mile away from the old original movie set, Field of Dreams. Which still exists. It still exists. I played baseball there two, two or three summers ago. It was a wonderful experience. And, uh, and they're building a, what they say is a temporary stadium and field to house the, the, the seat, 8,000 people. Then they're going to tear it down. I'm willing personally to even leave Keep it. it. Camp, campaign to leave it there permanently. They should have the Field of Dreams annual All-Star Game Tournaments, there every events. single year. Oh, yeah. I don't know it's why. A tourist attraction. I can't believe that they're even considering. Like when they, did, when they did Lord of the Rings in New Zealand and they made all the Shire buildings, they agreed because I think the New Zealand government was, was worried that it was going to impact the environmental conditions. So they agreed, oh, we'll return it exactly as it was, not realizing that they had... A gold mine? A gold mine that's equivalent to being having Disneyland, you know, where people could, would come to Lord of the Rings world, you know? Make it somewhere where you could stay overnight. Absolutely. So that's what they got to do. That's what they got to do. They got to make that this 8,000-seat thing become a permanent part of our cultural heritage and uh, 
I'd play there in a heartbeat. I, that would mean oh, yeah. the world to play there. Oh, yeah. It'd be so much fun. And that's one of the things they do. As you know, you already know I go to stadiums every summer. I went to four new stadiums this last summer. I went to first time. I went to Milwaukee, Brewer Stadium. Nice. I no. liked it. I went to Minneapolis, Twins, which was... And Target? Target Field. It was, uh, that was my favorite. That was the best... But I went to Miami. The stadium was pretty good. Sure. And I went to Tampa, and I really liked that stadium, too. So next summer, it's going to be either doing Houston and Dallas back-to-back. Driving oh, yeah, the new one in Arlington. New Dallas? A new, a new yeah, Texas the Texas Rangers. Rangers have a new one. Well, I didn't know that. That's oh, news yeah. to me. Brand new. So, so I'm either going to do Dodgers, San Diego Padres, and or uh, Houston, Dallas, but also one of the East Coast things. Because that, that could be... A combination of of Yankees, Phillies, Orioles, Washington, and Washington Baltimore. Nationals. Yeah. So for the, for I've some, done that trip. For some, you've done those already. I'm a huge baseball fan. I actually cover Major League Baseball for our radio station. So I only have six parks left. I did Oakland this year. Did San Fran. Did uh, L.A. And I'm forgetting another one I did earlier. But uh, yeah, I try to tackle them all too. And yeah. the great thing is, my wife likes baseball too. So oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So the, so the only team I don't have any attraction to go in to see is the Mets for some reason. <laughs> I have no. I don't have a, a really a noted bias against them. Just that you know how you get excited about something. I don't get excited about going to see the Mets. <laughs> But the Yankees, I'm from Boston, yeah. so I'm a Red Sox fan, but I don't have access to grind about the Yankees. I think the Yankees are incredibly cool. Sure. They're amazing. And I guess part of this, because also for me, from Boston, I'm a Patriots fan, and I know how people rank on the Patriots, just like the, uh, the people who are not Yankees fans or against the Yankees. So I, so I What's wrong with a deflated ball, Walter? There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know. I mean, there's so many people <laughs> arguing both ways, whether it was true or not, you know? Sure. So... When you come back, are we still going to see more of these amazing trading cards? Which, you know, you've covered a lot of great people who bring positivity to arcades, to pinball. Well, first of all, the trading cards, I've designed 3,850 cards. That's general. It might be 50 more this way or 50 less that way. But it's about 3,850. Over 2,000 of them are actually in print and circulation around the world. So it's a pretty remarkable thing. And... I make no money off it. I'm a terrible businessman. <laughs> I've given away over a quarter of a million trading cards for his gifts. And so it's been a fun f- for me because I'm 70 years old now. I'm not wealthy, but I'm, I'm not wealthy at all. But I'm not worried about whether or not I become a... I don't have any big financial goals that I have to be wealthy or I have to do this or that. That I'm pretty content with a lot of the ways my life's going, just as long as I can pay my bills and have, continue to have funds. So I don't identify my value by how much money I have the banks. So I'm not worried whether or not the cards sell or not, in other words. So I give so many cards away. And the goal of the cards is to honor as many people as possible who deserve to be honored. And what that means is that this amazing gaming culture did not happen overnight. It happened because hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people around the world contributed their heart, their love, their creativity, their intelligence, their assets, their money, their time to make this amazing culture become what it is, like this event alone. All the people who donated as a, as a free service, their efforts to make this incredible adventure, this whole event. So the trading cards honor lots of people, including Pinball Profile. <laughs> so you heard it first. So we're going to do a pinball. We're going to do a pinball profile, and Wait you'll a have. Second. You'll now, have. Hold on. People are going to think I did this interview for that reason. I I just wanted to talk. I see you all the time here. This is ridiculous. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not going to throw you. I'm not going to throw you under the bus. Uh, uh, this is exactly something that I do. People who do podcasts, I honor podcasts on trading cards. 
I probably have, maybe there's a dozen podcasts that are on Trading Cards so far, only because it's hard to catch up to them. I do that because you're doing what I call oral history. By the way, that right there is the highest form of flattery you can give me because that is exactly what I want to do with this pinball profile, with people like yourself, to be able to have something that is archived. And I want to know more about Walter Day or whomever I'm talking to. And you've got this nice piece to learn about your story firsthand from you. Well, then you understand essentially the heart of what I'm talking about. I used to be a ragtime piano player. I used to actually perform big concerts like Scott Joplin, Maple Leaf, Rag, and all the songs from The Sting, the movie The Sting. I could could play this before the movie even came out. And uh, there was a book that came out in 1949 called They All Played Ragtime. And it was these two ragtime pianists who went around and interviewed everybody who was still alive from the original ragtime era of 1895 up to 1919. You know, the people who are still alive. And they interviewed about 40 people who had been part of that generation. And after they interviewed them, went around tape recorded and interviewed them, within the next few years, almost all of them died because they just barely caught them at the end. So all the stories that they saved from the dust heap of history that they do under the banner of oral history went on to be enjoyed by future generations. So you never know, you as an oral historian, what important anecdotes and memories and memoirs you're going to find on your tape recorder that could have been lost. Because you never know when people are going to leave the world. And all their stories will be lost if you don't go and find them. Oral history is extremely important because it fills up between the gaps because there'll always be the stories about the big famous names like Nolan Bushnell and you know uh, David Crane and stuff like that but it's the thousands and thousands of people who working together made the culture what it is and supported the culture and uplifted it to become what it became and their stories are just as valuable and just as important as the stories of Nolan Bushnell or David Crane or some of the or, or John Romero who did you know Doom and stuff like that So I always support people who are doing oral history because they're going out and getting in the trenches in the front line and finding stories that are going to be overlooked by the history books. So everything they're doing is of major importance and they should be honored because they are truly as much historians as the historians who might be operating out of the Smithsonian Institute. Wow. Thank you very much. That's so kind of you to say, Walter. And, you know, for many people listening to this program, you know, there might be a few thousand that know your history, but there might be a few thousand that don't know anything about Walter Day and want to find out more. So where can people contact you, Walter? Well, I have a website where the trading cards are. It's called The Walter Day Collection. The Walter Day Collect Four, four words, dot com. The Walter Day Collection dot com. So you can get a hold of me through that. And also, I'm, all, I'm over Facebook. You can find me on Facebook, Walter Day, and come and join me and everything like that. You're a wonderful man. I appreciate you doing everything you do. I know I've taken you away from your booth there. A lot of people are wondering, where's Walter? So we got to get you back there. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I've been honored to be on Pinball Profile. I'm Walter Day, and you're listening to Pinball Profile. <laughs> That's the best one I've ever heard. This has been your Pinball Profile. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. Please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Check us out on Instagram at Pinball Profile. I'm Jeff Teolis.